morning, Grace Gospel Church. Thank you all for coming. We're continuing in our series on Abraham, the father of the faithful. Our brother Joe read for us a, a pretty long passage of Scripture. And then we read together a passage from the New Testament. And hopefully you saw the connection there. These biblical accounts from history, true stories of what actually took place in the lives of biblical characters, of real individuals who, individuals who lived and walked on this earth, these are lessons, according to Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians, for you and I. They are spiritual lessons. What happened to Abraham physically, temporally, materially on this earth there are spiritual applications. There are spiritual truths and spiritual lessons that grow out of those, that these actual temporal historical accounts and details and incidents, that they point to spiritual truths. And so today's lesson is primarily going to be about spiritual warfare. It grows out of the warfare that Abraham experienced in the first part of Genesis chapter 14. But first, let's do a quick review of everything that we've covered. We've had three previous messages from the life of Abraham. It began in chapter 12 with a promise to the faithful, to Abraham. If he would believe and trust and be faithful to the word of God, the promise of God that was expressed to him in God's own words to Abraham, then he would enter into eventually a covenant with God and that the whole world, not just the Jewish people, but the whole world through Abraham will be blessed. He gave him that promise and Abraham acted in faith upon that. But then we don't even need to leave that very first chapter when we find out that the father of the faithful also is the father of the faithless, that Abraham is the inventor of what we often hear called yo-yo faith. He's up and he's down, and then he's back up again, and then he's down. Again and again, this happens in the life of Abraham. And so <laughs> we love Abraham because he had feet of clay at times, just like you and I. Sometimes we have our spiritual highs, and sometimes we fail the Lord through unbelief in the promises and the words of God. Going on from Genesis chapter 12, we move to Genesis chapter 13, which is a chapter about the restoration of the faithful. God used the world... Pharaoh in Egypt and his men to chastise Abraham and send him out of the world back to where he should be. And chapter 13 is about the restoration that after Abraham failed so badly, so soon, God didn't say, forget it. Forget Abraham, I'm crossing, taking a sharpie and a big black line right through that name. I'll find somebody else who will trust me and believe in me without failure. No, God didn't do that. God had promised to Abraham through you, 
all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we would find out that that would be through Messiah, Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the whole world would be blessed through the salvation Christ provided on the cross. Chapter 13, we need to always, as we read the books of the Bible, read them as one book. They're divided into chapters for our convenience, but each book is one continuous story in a much larger story. The Bible, 66 books, it all tells us the same story. Never forget what happened in the earlier chapters. They're all connected. Remember what I told you in the first message? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, Moses adds in a little parenthetical, a narrative comment. He says, the Canaanites were in the land. And we don't have to wait too long until the verses our brother Joe read for us to find out what the Canaanites were going to do, what kind of problem they were first going to cause. And they would continue to cause problems throughout the history of Israel. But the restoration of the faithful, God doesn't hold Abraham's failing against him. As we saw Paul the Apostle write to Timothy in the New Testament, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He swore, he gave a promise, he swore an oath by his own name, he gave his word, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He didn't, ask, he didn't ask Abraham to do anything. He didn't say, if you do this, then I will do this. That's the Mosaic law. That's not the Abrahamic covenant. That's not the new covenant in Jesus Christ's blood. Christ did it all, just like God promised it all to Abraham. In Genesis 13, the Lord is revealed in this way. Always do this, brothers and sisters. When you read a passage of Scripture, especially these narratives, always ask yourself, what is it teaching me about God and or Jesus Christ? They are the key characters of the Bible, not you and I, not Abraham, not David, not Samson, not Daniel. They are not the key characters. They're important characters. Don't misunderstand me. But the main character of Scripture is God and Christ. And the Lord is revealed in Genesis 13 in this way. Even in the face of the failure of the faithful, God remains faithful to his promises. Even when you and I fail him, he remains faithful to his promises. He will never cast us away according to scripture he has promised that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee that's his promise it's as strong a promise to you and I as believers in Christ as the promise he made to Abraham that through Abraham all the nations of the earth shall be blessed and we know that came to pass through Jesus Christ the life that he lived the death that he died and then his resurrection that happened in history. It's one of the most historically verifiable facts of ancient history, the way historians judge written accounts. There should be no doubt that Christ lived on this earth, that he went to the cross. The theological significance of that 
is found in Scripture. But history records, extra-biblical history records the person and the death of Jesus Christ. If you were to take only one thing away from Genesis 13, it would be that God always blesses faithfulness. Let's just look at a few of the verses from Genesis 13 by way of review. Faith's journey can come to barren places. After Pharaoh casts Abraham out of Egypt, Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, to the wilderness, to that desert wilderness, the very place that he was at when there was a famine in the land, and he went down into Egypt. He comes back to the very wilderness place. Brothers and sisters, our walk with the Lord can bring us to barren places. But that's no cause for despair, no cause for alarm when we find ourselves in a wilderness place. What we need to do is exactly what Abraham did. God doesn't keep us in these barren places. Abraham went on his journeys from the Negev. He left the Negev. We don't have to remain in a spiritual wilderness, a spiritually dry land. We can do exactly what Abraham did and journey from that place. Abraham went as far as Bethel. Bethel, as we know, the Hebrew word means house of God, house of God. Faith finds its home with God. If you find yourself in a dry spiritual wilderness, turn to God. Turn to the house of God, the place where God dwells. And I'm not talking about this room or this building. Again, this is physical, just like Bethel was a physical place. We're talking about a spiritual relationship with God and Christ, where they have a home in our heart, in our soul. Faith sometimes needs repetition. Notice this. He went on his journeys as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Abraham got off track. When God got him back on track, where did he end up? In the place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning. God took him right back to the place where he got off track. The same thing is true of you and I. If we get off track spiritually, God will bring us back. We can't avoid that place. We'll never get back on the right track if we do not return to the place that we departed from. And so we find here that sometimes our faith, just like Abraham, needs repetition. Sometimes we have to go back to the place where we were clearly standing on the path of righteousness, on the solid ground, and we need to start again from there. Faith will always return to worship. This is one of the ways you can know that you are back on the path by how much worship there is in your life how much praise and thanksgiving there is to God, how much acknowledgement and appreciation and gratitude you have in your heart. You utter with your lips. You sing with your voice.
to the Lord God. Faith always returns to the place of worship, to the place of the altar. An altar was used for worshiping the Lord in those days. The altar that he had made formally, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He worshiped the Lord God. The Lord, as her brother Danny brought out very, uh, very clearly, the Lord always blesses trust. Lot chose the good land. Abraham told him, you pick the land. Whatever you pick, I'll go the other way. Lot saw the best land, even though it was a land of spiritual danger near Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham trusted in the Lord this time. You said you'd give me all this land. doesn't matter what land Lot picks. It's all going to be my descendants based on your promise. And he allowed Lot to pick that land. And after Lot separated, after the worldly-minded Lot separated, the one who was not focused on God, the one who was focused on his own prophet, who was willing to risk spiritual danger for temporal, for material wealth, then the Lord speaks to Abraham. The Lord always blesses trust. And he blessed Abraham here for trusting in God's promise and letting Lot pick first. And then this is key. If, if you were to look for one key thought in Genesis chapters 12 and 13, there's only one thing that is repeated. We know repetition is important. Jesus Christ said, truly, truly. He would call Saul, 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 Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha, holy, holy, holy. We recognize the importance of repetition. When Christ says, truly, truly, everybody pays attention. But here we have repetition. At the end of chapter 13, the Lord say, said to Abraham, now lift up your eyes and look, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, as many as the grains of dust. The Lord repeats his promise in even more detail this time. Because Abraham trusted in him. These, this was the promise that he made at the very beginning of chapter 12. He repeats it at the end of chapter 13. They're like bookends. This is what chapters 12 and 13 are all about. The promise of God does not depend on the faithfulness of man. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or runs. It depends upon the God who promised. And he's made great and precious promises to you and I. You can find them throughout Scripture. You can find them in the New Testament. God has not changed. The God of Genesis is the God of the New Testament. And he does not change. He says in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. In Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, yea, and forever. God does not change. God repeats his promise because this is what's important. His promise, his word is supremely important. And with that, we come to chapter 14, which, Lord willing, we'll look at in two parts. 
Chapter 14 is about warfare and worship in the life of the faithful. We'll see the faithful at war this week and, Lord willing, the faithful in worship the second half of chapter 14 next week. So let's begin our study of chapter 14 by looking at warfare in the life of the faithful. And when I say warfare here, Abraham experienced literal warfare, the kind of warfare that goes on amongst nations and people groups throughout the world, throughout history. Someone has said once, since Cain slew Abel, there has not been a time when man has not been at war against his fellow man. Now, we can't prove that, but throughout recorded history, what we do know is that there's scarcely a period where there is no war. In fact, we only record the great civilizations. They're the ones who wrote and whose writings we still have today. If you examine minor nations and peoples on other continents, there might never be a time when there is not war of some nature going on. This is the nature of man, and we'll find out why in just a little bit. But when we talk about warfare throughout the rest of this message, when I say warfare and the believer and the faithful, I mean spiritual warfare. That's why our brother Joe had us read together the verses from Ephesians chapter 6 that talk about spiritual warfare and the armor of God that we need in order to engage in spiritual warfare as we walk and live our life as a Christian. The Lord is revealed in Genesis 14 in the following way. God in his sovereign plan for Abraham and for you and I, God in his sovereign plan allows warfare to enter the life of the believer. What, is God not able to stop it? Of course he could if he didn't want it. Did God not see it? Did it sneak in unawares in the, in, in the darkness of night warfare? No. Even darkness is like light to thee, the scripture says. This doesn't catch God by surprise. It's all part of his sovereign plan. He allows warfare to enter your life and mine just as he did in Abraham's life. For you and I, we're talking again spiritual warfare. I want to make that very clear. This is part of God's plan. He must have a good purpose in it. And just like Abraham had a trust in the promises and words of God, so too you and I need to trust as well that even in spiritual warfare, God has a purpose that's not only for his glory, but for your good and my good. Remember this, our greatest good is always found in his greatest glory. He doesn't just glorify himself at our expense. No, our greatest good is always found in his greatest glory. How he does that, I don't know. But he's God. He knows how he does it, and he's able to do it. If you take only one thing away from this morning's message, let it be this. God will give you spiritual victory. Not might. He will give you spiritual victory if you are faithful. If you continue to trust in him, continue to live righteously in obedience to his word, trusting that God knows what he's doing in spiritual warfare, he will give you spiritual victory. 
just as he gave Abraham literal victory in physical combat in chapter 14. Now, this is kind of amazing. When chapter 13 closed out, God said to Abraham, look northward, look southward, eastward, westward, look every direction, in other words. All the land that you see, I'm going to give it to you. Wow, if God told us he was going to give us something, we'd be like, all right, all right, God, lay it on me. Give it to me. Pour it out full measure, running over. But what happens in chapter 14? Right after saying, I'm going to give you this land, warfare. Huh? Wait, wait a second, wait a second. That, that can't be the land God is going to give. Warfare characterized the land that God had promised to Abraham. That's the very first thing that happens. Remember, chapter 14 is connected to chapter 13. You have to read it through. When you read a novel or a story, perhaps a, a book on uh, 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 the South Pacific battles of the Navy in World War II, you don't read one chapter and then when you get to the next chapter, forget about everything that came before it. No, it's all connected. You remember what came before. God made this promise, and what he gave Abraham was a land characterized by warfare. The Canaanite was in the land, and that's why there would be warfare. God knows what he's doing. Always trust in him. We're going to look at, the, at warfare in the life of the believer under two main headings, the background of warfare and the believer in warfare. So let's first consider the background. How does Abraham find himself engaged in warfare? Warfare comes from being in the world. Just by being in the world, we will have spiritual warfare. It came about in the days of King Amraphel, King Ariok, King Kedorla Omer, King Tidal, that they made war with Barak, King of Sodom, and with Bershak, King of Gomorrah, King Shinab, and King Shemaber, and the King of Bilah. Warfare comes from the world. They made war. Kings, kings, kings. These are not the rightful kings. These are usurpers. Jesus Christ is the rightful king, as our brother Paul DeMano reminded us this morning in the song that he wrote. He is the king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. These are all usurpers who will not give God's glory, just like Psalm 2 says. Why do the rulers of this world take their stand and rise up against the Lord and his anointed. Kings rebel against the rightful king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Warfare comes from being in the world. It's just the way it is, just like it came from Abraham being in the land that God had promised to him. We will experience some degree of spiritual warfare just because we are in the world. We're not at home in heaven this is not our home. We're passing through. Peter says we're pilgrims. We're strangers and aliens. This is not our home. Paul says this to the Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're citizens of, not this world system. Warfare comes from rebellion. 
All these came as allies to the Valley of Sidim. Twelve years they had served Kedor <coughs> Leomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. Warfare comes from rebellion. It began with Satan's rebellion against God and then Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the garden. Rebellion is what characterizes man. Exactly what the crowd said in Pilate's judgment hall, we will not have this man rule over us. That's what every man says, every person says when they rebel and sin against God. We will not have the rightful king to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. As we sang, do you believe that? Every knee. We can do it willingly or we will do it out of fear when he returns and we stand before him in judgment. Warfare comes from rebellion. The rebellion of Adam and Eve against the command of God. And we inherit that. We're in this world. We are rebellious ourselves. God will use warfare at times to chastise us, to get us back on the right path. But he also uses it to polish us, to, to burnish off any rough edges and to polish us smooth so that our character becomes more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Warfare is a characteristic of the world. The kings came and defeated other peoples. They conquered all the, the country. Warfare is just a characteristic of this world. Man wants to do the most terrible things to their fellow man created in the image of God. They do to man exactly what they wish they could do to God, but they're powerless against God. They take their rebellion out against their fellow man, just like Cain slew Abel. Warfare is attractive to the world. They seem to like it. Have you ever seen parades? They were popular back in the 60s. In some countries, they're still popular today. The military marching with all its weaponry and its tanks and its missiles down the streets of a large city. Warfare is attractive to the world. They came out and they arrayed for battle. They presented themselves. See what we have that we can do you harm with. It's an attractive thing to the world. But to the believer in Christ, warfare, at least in this world, is a horrid thing. And spiritual warfare as well. We don't desire that but we have no control over it. God in his infinite wisdom, mercy, goodness, and love has allowed spiritual warfare into the life of the believer. It doesn't attract us, it doesn't draw us, but we are going to be engaged in it, and so we fight with the weapons that God has provided. Warfare can result in destruction. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Warfare can bring destruction. If you are here this morning, and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, 
and what he accomplished when he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world in his body, shedding his blood, and dying in the place of the sinner. If you have never trusted in that, if you are counting on anything else, any other religion, any of your good deeds, your prayers, your giving, your church attendance, no matter what it is you're counting on, that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, if you're counting on anything else, you are in rebellion against God. Just like Cain, who came his own way, not by faith. And God rejected Cain. You are in rebellion against God, and destruction is the end. When every knee shall bow before him when he returns, and every tongue confess, he will separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep he'll put on his right side, and the goats on the left. He will receive the sheep, and he'll cast the goats away. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation he provided on the cross, please, I, I beg you, consider Christ and what he did for the sinner, what he did for the world, and trust in him. Trust in what the scripture says, what the word of God says that Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners, Paul writes. And then he says this, among whom I am chief. Paul's right. It's just he was thinking of the wrong Paul. The Paul that is the chief of sinners was born 1,900 years later. That was me. And that's the way you ought to feel as well. Just like the tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, not a sinner, but the sinner, the chief of sinners. Cry out to him for salvation. Acknowledge that you deserve his wrath and judgment. And cry out to him, and he will save you. He has promised it. The word of God says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Please do that. Don't wait. Do it even today. In spiritual warfare, it may take from us what we hold dear. The victorious four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They took the goods. There are idols of our heart things that we love and cherish that we don't necessarily need to live a life that glorifies God and Christ. Spiritual warfare may strip all that away so that we see what is important in this life. It's a man's life does not consist of possessions. Christ taught, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It doesn't profit at all. Spiritual warfare can be used by God to take all these material goods 
all these trinkets that shine so brightly that captivate us, take them all away from us. These things that we really don't need. But spiritual warfare, just like the warfare in Genesis 14, may even take the food supply, that which is necessary. Spiritual warfare, God may allow it to take away what we truly need even so that we have to trust in him to provide. God can use spiritual warfare to help us grow immeasurably in Jesus Christ and become more like him and more focused on God and Christ and what truly matters in life. Warfare also enters, spiritual warfare also enters the life of the believer due to poor decisions. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. Where, when he looked in chapter 13 and he saw the best land and he went there, it was in the valley, and it, uh, Moses wrote right in there that in that valley the men of Sodom and Gomorrah lived. Very immoral, ungodly people. Lot didn't care about that spiritual danger. He went as close as he could. The next time we encounter Lot, he's actually living in Sodom. Not just near it, but in it. Warfare can come into the life of the believer and they can suffer loss the way Lot did because of poor decisions. We talk a lot about God's grace here at Grace Gospel Church. Historically, this church has preached grace, grace, grace for over 40 years, and it's right to do so. But there's another principle that operates throughout God's creation, that operates in the life of even the believer. It's not just God's grace, that operates, that's true, but God's government. And everyone here who's been a Christian for a while and read their Bible knows what God's government is. You may not have heard it called that. Theologians and Bible scholars call it that, but you know the verses. They're from Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. The one who sows to the flesh, as Lot did, the one who sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit shall from the spirit reap eternal life. Lot sowed to the flesh. He chose the best land despite the spiritual danger. And what happened? This warfare came upon him and took him and his possessions and his family away. Warfare can come upon the life of the believer when God uses it to chastise us. He doesn't only use it to chastise us, as I stated. He can use it to refine us, but it also can be used to chasten the same way it chastened Lot here. Warfare can come due to poor decisions. We will reap what we sow. We won't lose our salvation, but we, there are consequences to sowing to the flesh 
to living sinfully when we profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. We've seen the background of warfare because we're in the world because of poor decisions. Let's look at the believer in warfare, and now we'll focus more on Abraham and what he does. It is the world that involves the believer in warfare, a fugitive, someone who escaped the battle, came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, this fugitive, this escapee from the battle, he wasn't captured and carried away, he came. It is going to be the world that will involve the believer in spiritual warfare. If not for the world, we'd have no spiritual warfare, but we live in the world. When I say the world, recall it's the world system. The evil world system under the control of Satan. You can read about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. He is the God of this world. He is the one directing the course of this world. That's the world that I'm talking about throughout this message, this evil world system opposed to God and Christ in rebellion, active rebellion against them under the control of Satan. Satan is the one who pulls the strings of this world. This world system in rebellion against God and Christ dances to the tune that Satan plays. The world involves the believer in warfare. And it'll eventually involve, at some point, all believers. We just can't avoid it as much as we would like to. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, there's going to be something in your life that will spur you up to finally fight against the sin that is trying to overwhelm you in your life. It may even be to aid another believer. You will engage in spiritual warfare on behalf of another. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men and went in pursuit. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this, beginning in, uh, in verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens. That's what Abraham basically did here. In the physical sense, he lived out that spiritual truth that Paul would write about millennia later, thousands of years later, he would write about coming to the aid of another person spiritually, entering into spiritual warfare on behalf of another person. Abraham let out his trained men and went in pursuit. Spiritual warfare, just like Abraham in Genesis 14, spiritual warfare is won by a strategy for battle. In Abraham's case, he divided his forces against them by night. He surrounded them by night. He used strategy to defeat those four kings and their armies. The strategy for our battle, we read together. 
in Ephesians chapter 6. I encourage you, when you go home today, and maybe each day this week, it'll take you two minutes at most. Read verses, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Become familiar with the armor of God. See what God has given to you as believers in Christ for your defense in spiritual warfare. And you'll notice something. There's only one offensive piece listed there. Everything else protects you, but there's only one thing, and that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Oh, no, Paul, not again. You're talking about the Bible. I need to read the Bible. It's not enough to just read the daily bread and be done with it. No, brothers and sisters, become a student of Scripture. That is God's mind there. It is all true. I guarantee you, every one of us, if somebody wrote a book that was 100% true and said, if you do everything in this book, you will make $10 million. Who wouldn't read that book? We would all read it, and we would follow it religiously. God has given us the truth, his mind written down, every thought that he wants you and I to know. If we'd want to know all that financial advice, that surefire way to become wealthy, not a get-rich-quick scheme, but the truth. We would all read it. God tells us how to have eternal life and how we can live a life that's pleasing to him. Why don't we esteem it necessary? Like the psalmist said, thy word I esteem more necessary than my daily food. The Word of God is what you and I need in order to survive spiritual warfare and be victorious in spiritual warfare. But, Paul, I'm not a good reader. Well, praise the Lord, you live in a great age. You can listen to the Word of God. They've recorded it. You can listen to it in multiple translations. They've even hired famous Hollywood actors, not just to read it, but to act it out. So this battle scene here will be acted out by some of the best voice actors in Hollywood. You can get dramatized audio Bibles. Whatever you need to hear the Word of God, to read the Word of God, do it, brothers and sisters, so that you can survive and be victorious in spiritual warfare. That's part of God's strategy for you and I to be victorious in spiritual warfare. God will always give the faithful victory in warfare. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them. Just like Abraham defeated those four kings, so too God will enable every one of his children to be victorious in spiritual warfare. If we are not victorious, we can't point the finger at God and blame him. God, it's your fault. No, it's never God's fault. We are the ones who did not desire the spiritual victory. 
God will always give the faithful victory in spiritual warfare. God's victory in spiritual warfare can drive the enemy far away. After he defeated them, Abraham and his men pursued them north of Damascus. This over 100 miles away. He drove them completely out of the land that God was going to give to him. God gives blessing in spiritual victory. There's something for you and I in spiritual victory. We shouldn't just give up and surrender when temptation gets strong, when the circumstances of this life seem to overwhelm us and get us down and cause us to take our eyes off of the Lord. Fight using the armor and the sword of the Spirit. Use the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit. God gives blessing and spiritual victory. Abraham brought back all the goods. God can give blessing in spiritual victory. He will give you blessing. Even the victory itself is a blessing. God's blessing and victory blesses others as well. Abraham also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Just as Abraham was able to bless others through his material victory in warfare, so too God can use you to be a blessing to others when you experience spiritual victory in your life. He'll use you to bless others. Imagine that. Not only are you blessed in victory, but he will use you to bless others as well. I think that's fantastic. If you don't do it for yourself, do it for the children. No, do it for your brothers and sisters in Christ. In conclusion, we saw that God in his sovereign plan allows warfare in the life of the believer. He has his purpose for it. We will understand it in that day when we see the Lord face to face and we stand before him. And remember, God can give you victory in spiritual warfare if you are faithful. There will never be victory for you or I spiritually if we are not faithful to him. So today, will you recognize spiritual warfare in your life? When you're tempted, when you want to give in to sin, that's spiritual warfare. When the circumstances of life and trials outside of your control come upon you, whether you previously made a poor decision and sowed to the flesh, or whether it's, it has nothing to do with that and you've been living faithful and circumstances come upon you, that is spiritual warfare. God wants you to respond in a way that the world doesn't respond. He wants you to respond like Jesus Christ would. Recognize spiritual warfare in your life. When, when these things happen, that's what it is. Say, oh, that's spiritual warfare. Let me put on the armor of God. We should always be wearing it, but if I'm not, let me put it on. Let me draw the sword of the Spirit. What does God's word have to say to me? 
so I can be victorious, so I can overcome depression or anxiety or fear, worry, sinful pride, so I can stay strong and not be anxious in the trials of life. Recognize it is spiritual warfare and see how God wants to give you a spiritual victory through being faithful to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you so much for the life of Abraham. We thank you, dear God, that everything that you did to bless your dear faithful child Abraham, you intend to bless us spiritually in the same way. You have given us great and precious promises, and we thank you for them, and we know that your promises will always come true. They will never fail. Dear God, would you be pleased to help us to be faithful the way Abraham was? Would you be pleased to strengthen our faith and our trust in you? Oh, dear God, help us to live in Bethel, your house, to be close to you so that we always turn to you in every trial and tribulation in life. Open our eyes and help us to view the circumstances of life and the temptation of life as spiritual warfare. Make us alert to it, we pray, for your glory.